Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with another Afropop close-up, available when you subscribe to the Afropop Worldwide podcast and in the podcast section at afropop.org. Today, we look at Mali's rich music through the eyes of historian Gregory Mann of Columbia University. This episode, Mali, the politics behind the music, hosted by producer Banning Air. Few African countries have received as much coverage on Afropop worldwide as Mali. And with good reason. Mali is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's 80% Muslim, and for the most part, its music has not been strongly influenced by international trends. And yet, Mali has produced more successful recording and touring musicians in the American market than any other African country. Why is that? It's a question we ask a lot, and I'm afraid you will not find the answer in this podcast. But consider this. I've been to Mali five times since 1993. I wrote a book about its music and history after living with the great griot guitarist Jelimadi Tunkara, whom we're hearing now. Over the years, I've interviewed all sorts of musicians, scholars, and experts about many aspects of Malian music. But recently, I sat down with historian Gregory Mann of Columbia University, and I learned things I had never understood in all my experiences on the ground in Mali. Gregory wrote a book called From Empires to NGOs in the West African Sahel, and it describes, among other things, the creation and growing pains of Mali as a modern state. Gregory and I talked in his New York apartment for nearly three hours, and this podcast is a set of highlights from that conversation. We began at Malian Independence in 1960. Here's Gregory. If you look at Mali in 1960, you'd see mostly a rural country. There's a few great historic cities, right? Jene, Timbuktu, you know, Bamako is becoming an ever more important city at the time. But still, most people live in the countryside. They live under the French colonial state, which is receding, allowing African administration to take over gradually and slowly from the mid-1950s. There are village chiefs, and there's a great deal of power vested in the canton chiefs, who come you know, one rank above the, the village chiefs. And one of the big political questions at the time, really across West Africa, is what do we do with these chiefs? You know, do we keep them? Do we get rid of them? The position of the Canton chief was abolished in Mali. And that didn't happen everywhere. It didn't happen in Senegal, it didn't happen in Niger. It happened in Guinea, and it happened in Mali. The revolutionary governments that were coming into power were interested in dismantling the chieftaincy and creating societies of equals. Now, they didn't succeed in doing that, but that was their vision. Obviously, there's a lot of machinations that go on in the process of getting from those questions to an actual government. But early on in your book, you asked the question, when did Mali become a society? I'd say Mali became a society in, in the 1960s. Previously, under the colonial regime, Malian society was rich in cultural traditions, not dynamic, without internal tensions and struggles, static, rural, bucolic. This kind of idea of Africa is unchanging, unmoving. So conceiving of Mali as an independent nation state, you meant living in social units that respond to social laws and pressures as other places do. Whether or not you have a class struggle in Mali was a big question in the 1960s and 70s. But you certainly had social strata. You had hereditary nobility. You had people who have different kind of artisanal statuses, blacksmiths, griots, etc. 
And the political question was, could these people have an equal form of citizenship? There was also a question of whether or not the ways in which they related to each other changed over time, or were they merely anchored in tradition and unable to change? You know, a lot of the griots that I've interviewed, they talk about the colonial period and the Cairo movement, a movement that was designed to convince the French colonials that culture and griot culture was a good thing, and it was not something they should fear. It was something they should embrace. And it's portrayed as having been successful. And you can just tell, being in Mali, that people still dress traditionally. They still really value their traditional music and culture. They haven't been assaulted on the cultural plane. What was the attitude and what was the impact, before we even get to 1960, of the French colonials on traditional culture and traditional life? That's a great question. One thing to bear in mind about Mali is that it was a colony, but it was never a settler colony. You have French soldiers, you have French administrators, you have a small number of missionaries. But because the country was mostly Muslim, the Christian missionaries were only in certain areas and didn't play as large a role as they played in other parts of West Africa. And the colonial period was very brief in Mali. The colonial period in Mali was a few decades, from the 1880s, 1890s through 1960. And the impact, therefore, was much smaller than it was in many other places. Not that many Malian children went to school. They didn't live in cities where they would encounter colonial power very viscerally. In fact, the way in which people would encounter the power of the colonial state was more often than not through the Canton chiefs in the rural areas, which is where most people lived. So Mali, it seems to me, never lost this idea of having its own identity, the kind of West African Islamic ecumen that was shared in the great empires of the 19th century, but also going back to the 9th century, had left a heritage that people continue to prize in, in various ways. Up to this day. Up to this day, absolutely. And of course, griotic tradition plays an enormous role in that, and Malians are very proud of that. So the colonial impact, I don't want to say that it was minor, it was violent, it was brutal, it was a short, sharp shock at the places where colonial power was focused. The building of dams and infrastructure, military recruitment, taxation, road building. People have really brutal memories of that period, those who survived it, especially the 1930s, 1940s. But across society as a whole, people didn't lose their moorings or forget who they were, they weren't made to forget who they were. So the Cairo movement says the griots have a valuable role to play of peace, of negotiation, of cooperation, finding ways to avoid conflict and to seek the counsel of the past without being governed by the past. I think that's something that the griotic tradition has developed over time and that many of the people who come from that, what I think of as an intellectual as well as an artistic tradition, excel in that kind of diplomacy, not between different powers, but in some sense between the past and the present. Mali's had five presidents since 1960. First, Modibo Keita overthrown in a coup in 1968. Then, the long military regime of Musa Traore was also overthrown during popular protests in 1991. And then you have three democratically elected presidents. Alpha Umar Konare in the 1990s, Alpha Tumani Toure, Atete as they called him, in the early 2000s, and now, in the wake of Mali's political crisis of 2012 and 13, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, Ibeka, 
In our conversation, Gregory Mann was really interesting on the subject of griots, these hereditary entertainers, praise singers, and negotiators. It turns out griots fared quite differently under these various regimes. The military government, the Hunza under Musa, they were very attentive to the griot class. They were great patrons of the griots. The socialist government in the 1960s was not so strong on griots, not in favor of the kind of reinforcement of social hierarchies that they felt that griots were engaged in, and very skeptical about this idea that the griots should be supported by the noble class. That's different than the position that the military government would take, which was to celebrate traditional songs that celebrated, of course, the warrior class. The famous song Duga about the vulture becomes the symbol, really, of the hunta. There's a nice piece from Claude Meassou in the 1960s where he says the ruling elite of the socialist government stayed away from the griots because they would come up to them and remind them of their low social origins. You don't base your authority on your ancestry. You base your authority on this idea of the will of the people. What kind of power is that? What kind of power is it that comes from the will of the people? That can only be an ephemeral form of power. I mean, Konari actually faced this problem in the 1990s. Oh, everyone came out and voted for you. So what? That doesn't make you a legitimate holder of political power. Uh, that's so interesting. This is rearranging my thinking about things that I uh, understood in the past. For example, Jalamadi Tunkara, who was a griot and who was very pro-Konare, he played in the Super Rail Band, which was supported originally by the railroad. And he always spoke very well of Moribo Keita and very poorly of Musa Traore. So I had a kind of an opposite impression based on that from what you're saying. And I understand now a bit more why. I mean, I think from Jalamati's point of view, he was really just talking about money. Modi Boketa bought into this idea of using music, not necessarily griotism, but music, to create national unity. This whole thing of sending musicians to Cuba to be trained and bringing them back and the national orchestras and that whole system of music to create national identity that is really what Jalamadi liked about Modi Boketa. It's not his attitude towards griotism. <laughs> We'll come back to Conore in the 1990s. It's really a crucial era in terms of the projection of Mali music out into the world. But first, a little on non-governmental organizations, NGOs. Gregory's book is subtitled The Road to Non-Governmentality. That's roughly a condition where non-state forces, NGOs, have taken over what used to be core responsibilities of the state. All right, let's talk about NGOs and how they came to assume such a large role in the management of the country. I want to go back to the early 70s when the whole thing began and sort of lead us to this idea of non-governmentality that's central to your book. Well, the NGOs first began to come to Mali as they do to Mali's neighbors with the drought of 1973-74 and suddenly you've got this humanitarian crisis. You know, when we think of the years of independence as the years of kind of milk and honey, they're also the years of rain. So in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, there's great rain in the Sahel, which is dry. The land is just south of Sahara. It's arable, but it depends on the rain coming. And it depends on pastoralism and herds. And those herds flourished through the 1960s. All that started to decline around 1968. 
And by 1973-74, you'd had years with no rain, and the herds were collapsing. It happens fairly suddenly, and left many people absolutely destitute. No cattle, nothing to trade for grain. The grain itself is failing, the crops are failing. And so in many ways, the great crisis of the North that we see happening now is the aftershock of this famine of 1973-74, the drought that was most acute then, reoccurred in the 1980s, and then episodically since then, there have been moments of drought, but this was the great moment in which the wealth of the pastoralist was lost very suddenly. The question since then has been, how can you have a sustainable economy in the North if the basis of livestock is conditional on rain coming? So in 1973-74, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people left the Sahara, the northern points of the Sahel, to seek shelter and sustenance further south. Big camps of refugees grew up around Niamey in Niger and also in certain places in eastern Mali. But the Malian government had a very contentious relationship with the pastoralist populations of the north. Rebellion in the 1960s, been put down very violently. There's a lot of bad blood between the pastoralists and the Malian army already. By the 1990s, when both Gregory and I independently went to live in Mali, the state had shrunken a lot. NGOs were everywhere, involved in agriculture, family planning, communications, you name it. A Western neoliberal philosophy was pushing the Connery government to turn over more and more power to local, village, and regional authorities. This is what they called decentralization. And also to privatize industries, both very, very controversial moves. But living in Bamako at the time, I was in a world of musicians far from politics. And as I told Gregory, these things were hard to appreciate. Like you, I got to know Mali during the 1990s, and it seemed like a really sort of magical time. You felt this ancient quality to life, so visible in just the way people dressed and acted and lived. You felt like an outsider, but you felt very welcome. And of course, this was the era that produced so many of the great musical artists who together have created this very distinct and positive identity for this country on the world stage. You cited the New York Times, this great celebration of how Mali was like a model for how these countries could come into the modern age and not lose themselves. But I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the 1990s from your perspective now. And in what ways was this impression of an open, tolerant society where art and culture seemed to unite people across ethnic and class lines? Did it mask more complex and darker realities? I mean, I think the impression of a tolerant, open society that values artistic production and music in particular is still a correct one. It's still an apt one. But obviously there are other forces at work. I think the material inequality, the sense that people are being left behind, the prevalence of corruption, the promotion of self-interest. If you don't eat, you'll be eaten. And that gains more and more traction, but it doesn't overcome those other values, which I think remain. I mean, Mali's a very complex place. What happened in the 1990s, this moment of democratic experimentation, the sense that it was possible to maybe relaunch a democracy, that idea was pushed by outside donors, but also emerged from the political forces within Mali, which had been in struggle since the 1960s and 70s to push back the military dictatorship, to secure some kind of basic freedom, some kind of space for civil society. That's an old political struggle within Mali. And part of what happened in the 90s was that this group of leftists began to gain the upper hand. 
the political discourse was extraordinarily sharp. Freedom of speech was playing out on the airwaves, this kind of freedom to insult and to, to really uh, lay into the duly elected and constituted authority, right? If you remember the presidency of Alfa Omar Canare, who was seen as a hero on the outside because he was this kind of cultural traditionalist and a man of science and learning, being an archaeologist, and seen as a new kind of African leader who had never worn khaki, who had never served in the military, but rather represented potential for democracy and tolerance and exchange, and who pushed those values. Konare in the 1990s was celebrated on the outside, but often really castigated on the inside of Mali. And it reminds me a little bit of the way American politics is now, actually, where the discourse is very sharp and very nasty. Yeah. So what was the anti-Kanari line in a nutshell? The anti-Kanari line was that he was an illegitimate ruler, uh, that he'd been brought to power by the outside, that he was the darling of the West, that Musa Tarari's military government should not have been replaced, that what Mali needed, many felt, was not a kind of loose, leftist, liberal, tolerant form of government, but actually a form of government that was uh, harsher, more strict, more disciplined, that could keep the students in the classrooms and off the streets, for example, that could control the youth, that could control the unions. But the 1990s was really bedeviled by an opposition that was not a loyal opposition. You have a kind of opposition that says, I reject absolutely the legitimacy of the central authority. Two things that were going on at the time that were very divisive were privatization and decentralization. And so the decentralization, I mean, you know, returning the power to the countryside, bringing government home in some sense. It's kind of like states' rights here. Kind of like states' rights here. And in some abstract democratic sense, the power of the people is best recognized in smaller units, right? There's a question in Mali whether or not the capacity of the country is such that local forms of government can interface very well with a national government. When you have limited literacy, you have limited kind of human capital, you have a lot of issues that come up around decentralization about who exactly is going to run the show on the ground and how is that going to work. And if power is going to come back home, is it going to come back home to the former chiefs, the Canton chiefs and their you know descendants from the 1950s? Is it, to whom does it come back home and how exactly does that work? Obviously it raises the stakes of local political competition to a very high degree. The other question which affected the urban areas much more greatly was that of privatization. Motley had a lot of state enterprises, and an indebted nation under the neoliberal moment had to sell off those enterprises. So the telephone, you know, water, the railroad, etc. Abdurrahman Sisako's film Bamako a few years ago really captures the tensions of this privatization, that everything is lost, that the things of which we are most proud, particularly the railroad, which has this great role in the anti-colonial struggle, now it's been sold off. So our symbols of state sovereignty are sold off to private investors. You know, they could be from Canada, they could be from the U.S., they could be from France or wherever. And so this is not a government, this is a corner shop. And they're selling off the things that we invested in and developed over the decades. Which is why when you watch that film Bamako, there's the whistling of the train at key moments. So we have the crisis of 2012 and all the uncertainty and instability since. What is the effect of that on this huge presence of NGOs? 
I don't think there's a great deal of introspection amongst actors from the outside who are engaged in producing this big kind of NGO phenomenon. I don't think there's a questioning of privatization, of decentralization, of the neoliberal doctrine and the effects it might have had. I think that's a longer term discussion that maybe could open up at some point. The way that the international community or actors within it think about the Malian political crisis is to lay it at the feet of the Malians. It's the fault of particular people. It's the fault of an irresponsible political class. It's the fault of Atete individually. All of those arguments might have some validity to them, but I think it's useful to have a bigger and longer term perspective that says, look, one thing that happened over the years was a hollowing out of the state. The state effectively lost its authority and much of its legitimacy and capacity to function. But the NGO phenomenon in Mali hasn't really ended. It seems to me one legitimate question is whether or not a state that has shrunk so considerably and has neither the capital nor the human capital to provide basic social services and to assure healthcare in particular, whether those functions can be assumed once again by the Malian government or whether they remain in the realm of the NGOs. And if the NGOs don't provide them, then who will? You can read a more complete version of my long conversation with Gregory Mann on Afropop.org. And you can also listen to our two Hip Deep in Mali radio programs, which fill in more pieces of the complex puzzle that is Mali. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But to keep this series going, we need your support. If you like reports like this and you want to hear more, visit afropop.org and make a donation. Every dollar counts. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Banning Air. Mali